Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I have a special episode for you today. I'm going to be playing you the audio from several quick answer videos I've made on YouTube recently. We're going to talk about Jen Hatmaker's view of judging things based on the fruit. We're going to talk about the true nature of deception and the fact that you can still be deceived even if all the words are true. So we'll get into some of that. We're going to talk about the verse that says knowledge puffs up and how we can apply that to our Christian lives. We're also going to talk about taking the Bible literally. Have you ever been accused of being a literalist or a fundamentalist who takes everything in the Bible literally? We're going to talk about those questions and more today. But first up, we're going to talk about Jen Hatmaker. Is she right that we're supposed to judge certain doctrines based on how they make people feel. Check it out. Jen Hatmaker says that Christians should judge certain doctrines or teachings based on the fruit they produce in people's lives. But is this what Jesus meant when he said, you will recognize them by their fruits? In 2016, Jen Hatmaker became arguably the highest profile self-proclaimed evangelical to affirm same-sex marriage and relationships. About a year later, she went on a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, hosted by Peter Enns. When he asked her what was the key thing that caused her to change her mind, she referenced Jesus' teaching on fruit. She said this, when there's something, be it a person, a relationship, or a doctrine that feels ambiguous, or it feels contentious, or there's tension around its interpretation, look to the fruit. The fruit's going to tell you the truth. Then she went on to say that the fruit of the tree is rotten, meaning the non-affirming tree. In other words, churches that don't affirm same-sex marriage and relationships. So according to Jen Hatmaker, bad fruit equals bad feelings. Matthew Vines, author of God and the Gay Christian, holds this view as well. He calls it Jesus' test, and he says it's simple, and then he quotes Jesus. If a tree bears bad fruit, it can't be a good tree. 
If a tree bears good fruit, it can't be a bad tree. So all this language about good fruit and bad fruit, good trees and bad trees, can be found in Matthew chapter 7, the famous chapter where Jesus talks about not judging and who are his true followers. So let's take a look at this verse in context. In Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus continues, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus taught that good fruit means obedience to his commands, and bad fruit means immoral behavior. This will become more clear as we continue in the chapter. Starting in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In context, we need to understand what that word lawlessness actually meant. Lawlessness is in reference to God's law. In the Old Testament, God had a covenantal relationship with Israel in which they had to fulfill certain ceremonial and purity laws. These were always meant to be temporary in anticipation of the new covenant that would be fulfilled in Christ. God did not hold the surrounding nations accountable to those specific laws, but God's moral law, the law that's based on his nature and character, the law that has to do with good and evil, is not temporary and it doesn't change because God does not change. God did hold the surrounding nations to this law and judge them based on their obedience to it or their rebellion against it. God's moral law is universal. It's binding on all people of all times. And so when Jesus refers to workers of lawlessness, he's referring to people who do moral evil, those who break his moral law. Jesus connects bearing good fruit with keeping his commandments in John 15, 8. He says this, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist called the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. He said, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Once again, Scripture connects bearing good fruit with obedience and repentance. Good fruit means obedience, and bad fruit means sin. If we need any further proof, let's take a look at the Greek word that's translated into English as bad in reference to bad fruit. The word bad here is translated from the Greek word paneros, and it has a moral connotation. It means wicked or evil. So if we put that together, bad fruit literally means immoral behavior. It's ironic that the context within which Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits isn't about teachings or doctrines. He's talking about people, 
specifically false teachers. Any teacher who promotes immoral behavior is a false teacher, according to Jesus. And about those trees bearing fruit, although a tree can be beautiful and attractive and it can produce all the good feelings and make you feel wonderful, it can still bear bad fruit if it's teaching you to break God's law. All right, next we're going to get into the nature of deception. Where does deception come from? How is it practiced? Who participates in it? And can we be deceived even if all the words being used to communicate are factually true? So we have so much information available to us today through the internet and social media platforms. You can learn whatever you want to learn about any given topic on any given day at any given time. And not only can you learn things about it, it may be true, it may be false, but you can also find a community of people who are also interested in that same topic. So 2 Timothy tells us that there will come a time when people will no longer endure sound teaching. They won't endure truth anymore. And it says that they have itching ears, and so they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. And then it says they'll leave the truth and they'll wander off into myths. And so this is a word I think we need to take very seriously, and we need to examine our own own hearts and say, boy, is that me? Am I being deceived? Am I heaping up teachers that just tell me what my itching ears want to hear? And so I think if we look a little bit at the nature of deception, how it works, where it's coming from, I think this will help us to think clearly about this topic. So one thing I've noticed lately when I scroll through my social media newsfeed is that there are a lot of messages that are deceitful messages but all the words are actually factually true. So somebody can actually say all the correct things, but still cause you to land at a deceptive conclusion. And I think we'll see that this is actually how the nature of deception actually works as we examine some scriptures today. So where is this all coming from? Well, I think that we can look to a few different scriptures to identify the source of deception. It starts in Genesis 3. We have the serpent. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Then in Matthew 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, it describes who that is. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And also in Matthew 4, the devil is referred to as the tempter. Now, we learn from Revelation 12, 9, that the serpent of old, right, referring to the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, it says that he is the devil and Satan, and it calls him the deceiver of the whole world. In John 8, 44, Jesus was talking to some uh, Jewish leaders, and he said, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And here's what he says about the devil. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so I think we're beginning to see a theme here, that the devil is the tempter. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. There is no truth in him. He is crafty, and he's very, very good at deception. And he works his deceptions in the world. And we learn this from 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul is talking about false apostles, and he calls them deceitful workmen. He says they disguise 
themselves as apostles of Christ. And then he goes on to say, well, that's no wonder because even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their ends will correspond with their deeds. And so Paul is making the point here that the devil doesn't come out and say, oh, I'm going to deceive you or I'm going to tell you a lie and make the lie really ugly and unattractive. No, he's going to come as an angel of light. His false teachers and his false apostles are going to come disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This is what they were doing then. 1 Timothy 4.1 tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So when we think about deceptions that come along, different gospels, uh, teachings that contradict biblical Christianity. This isn't just happening in a vacuum. This is coming from the deceiver himself. And people will cooperate with his deceptions by devoting themselves to these teachings of demons. Jesus himself warned about this in Matthew 7. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're going to look just like one of you. They're going to look like a Christian. They're going to talk like a Christian. They know the lingo. They know the culture but inside are ravenous wolves. And so this is what's happening in the spirit realm in regard to deception. But people play a role as well. Like I mentioned, people tend to cooperate with these teachings of demons and these deceptions that come from the deceiver. And so as we mentioned earlier in 2 Timothy, there's going to come a time when people don't want sound teaching anymore. They don't want to hear uh, about the truth of what the Bible has to say about morality or about the gospel or about the nature of salvation. And they're going to accumulate teachers for themselves. So they're going to cooperate with these deceptive spirits to bring in these false teachings. And then it also says in Jude, a very interesting verse here, it says, certain people have crept in unnoticed. Again, no big announcement. They don't come in saying, hey, uh, I hate Christianity and here's what I want you to believe about it. It says they crept in unnoticed. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. And it goes on to say, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people also relying on their dreams. Ooh, that's a big one for right now. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Second Peter tells us false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So we know that there are doctrines of demons. We know it's coming from the deceiver, from Satan. We know people will cooperate with these doctrines of demons. So let's compare that with Jesus. Well, Jesus describes himself as truth. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John 16, 13, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. You can sort of see this comparison happening now. You have the devil who is the deceiver and you have God who is truth. 
Romans 12.2 tells us this, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I think sometimes Christians think discernment is really just a feeling you have inside. If you hear a teaching and it kind of hits you wrong, well, that's your discernment saying that's not right. But biblically speaking, discernment is when you take a teaching and you test it against truth. You test it against the Word of God. And I think we need to be vigilant as Christians to continue to do that because we are warned so many times throughout the New Testament that false teachers will come in, false teachings will be not just believed but accumulated and platformed. 1 John 4, 1 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In John 17, Jesus was praying for his disciples, and he prayed this, Sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, Your word is truth. And Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So we have a lot of hope to hold on to and we have the truth of God's word to test teachings against. Now, as I noted at the beginning of this video, I think when we look at the nature of deception, we're gonna see that you can actually come to a wrong and deceptive conclusion even if all of the words that were used to communicate that were factually accurate. And there's different ways this can happen. Number one, there can be accurate words, but with a wrong emphasis. Number two, there can be accurate words, but with a lot of truth left out of it. It's often said that the best lies contain the most truth. Let's take a look at two famous instances in the Bible when deception was attempted. First, Genesis 3. This is when the serpent came to Eve to deceive her. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here we have a partial truth, but with some untruth in the words that are being communicated from the devil to Eve. He lies to her by saying, you will not certainly die. But the partial truth is that her eyes will be opened. Later in the chapter, we also learn that God says, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So there was partial truth in the deception. But if we go to Matthew 4, when the devil comes to tempt Jesus himself, Jesus has fasted 40 days and nights. He's physically hungry. And it says, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Of course, the devil knew Jesus was the son of God. But Jesus answered by appealing to the authority of the scriptures. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is so interesting to me. Next, the devil takes him to the holy city and he sets him up at the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And then the devil quotes scripture. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The devil quotes scripture accurately. The words that he's actually using are factually accurate. They're scripture, but he's taking it out of context. 
He's causing there to be a twist in the interpretation, trying to make Jesus come to a deceptive conclusion, even with factually accurate words. That is what the scripture says. But Jesus wasn't having it. He wasn't about to get into a battle over interpretation. Jesus simply continues to quote scripture, appealing to the authority of the scriptures. Now, I think we can see here that the nature of deception is very subtle. It's a very slow and subtle shift. So I just want to encourage us as Christians that when we are interacting with any teaching, whether it be my teaching, your pastor's teaching, your favorite social media influencer, whoever it might be, take the words that are being said, test the truth of them against scripture. Make sure that there's not an overemphasis on something that causes a deceptive conclusion. Make sure there aren't things being left out that will cause you to come to a wrong conclusion because we have to take the whole truth, the whole counsel of God's word, and make sure that what we're being taught and what we believe line up with that. And like Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. All right, up next is a video I made in response to a particular interpretation of 1 Corinthians 8.1. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This has led many an unsuspecting Christian to interpret this verse to mean that we shouldn't really pursue too much knowledge because knowledge in some way is sort of opposed to love. So don't do the knowledge thing, but just do the love thing. So I'm going to address that interpretation in this next quick answer video. When I decided to take the intellectual aspect of my spiritual beliefs a little bit more seriously, some of my Christian friends were left a little bit confused by that. So I heard comments like, don't let your head get in the way of your heart. And, well, I don't need to study because I have faith. And be careful not to study too much because 1 Corinthians 8.1 says that knowledge puffs up. And I know that these comments were well-intended, but I also think they reflect an anti-intellectualism that we find in our culture that has kind of seeped into the church as well. So in an article titled, Burning Hearts Are Not Nourished by Empty Heads, R.C. Sproul wrote this. We live in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. Secular culture has embraced a kind of impressionism that threatens to turn all our brains into mush, and the evangelical world has followed suit, developing an allergy to all things intellectual. But this hasn't always been the case. Uh, Christians founded Ivy League universities like Harvard and Princeton. They pioneered the scientific revolution. The intellectual mark made by Christians on the world in history is incalculable. So let's go back and figure out what happened by looking at some history. So when the first Puritans arrived in America, they deeply valued the life of the mind. American philosopher J.P. Moreland noted this. The Puritans were highly educated people. The literacy rate for men in early Massachusetts and Connecticut was between 89 and 90 percent, who founded colleges, taught their children to read and write before the age of six, studied art, science, philosophy, and other fields as a way of loving God with the mind. So back then, ministers were considered to be the authorities, not just on spiritual matters, but on intellectual ones also. 
But this all began to change after several revivals broke out in America in the mid-1800s. Now, don't get me wrong, so much good came out of these revivals, including an emphasis on personal conversion and an emotionally engaged faith. But an overemphasis on the experiential part of Christianity began to take place of things like quiet reflection and thoughtful consideration and a deep grasp of authentic Christian teachings. Thousands of people heard revivalist preachers and became Christians, but many of these new believers didn't have an intellectual understanding of essential doctrines of Christianity. So because of that, cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses started to gain momentum and they went on to have a really profound impact on the beliefs of millions of people around the globe. The growth of theological illiteracy weakened the church's responses to certain intellectual attacks on Christianity that all happened around that same time. Of course, there was the empiricism of the Age of Enlightenment, the skepticism of German higher criticism, and also the development of Darwinian evolution. So this led many Christians to mistrust the intellectual pursuits rather than motivating them to confront these ideas head on. So by the early 1900s, liberalism began to influence mainline denominations, which provoked more fundamentalist type believers to retreat from the arena of public discourse to form their own theological institutions. And this isolated Christian ideas from the rest of the world. So rather than being salt of the earth, we effectively put the salt back in the cupboard. So together, these trends weakened the church's influence on broader culture and led many modern Christians to devalue a robust intellectual understanding of their faith. So that's a little bit of history, but what does the Bible say? Doesn't the Bible say knowledge puffs up? Well, when somebody uses a single verse from the Bible to make a point, I always try to remember Greg Kokel's useful tip, never read a Bible verse. So many words and phrases have multiple definitions and meanings, and when we don't consider the passages surrounding a particular verse, the context within which the verse is found, we can really miss its meaning. So right before the phrase, knowledge puffs up, the Apostle Paul wrote this, quote, Now about food sacrificed to idols. Now some Christians knew that idols weren't real. Others didn't know that, and they believed that eating food sacrificed to idols made it ceremonially unclean. So in context, Paul was exhorting the believers who had greater knowledge to show love to those with the weaker conscience and to not eat food offered to idols in front of them so that they wouldn't stumble. His point was that knowledge should be exercised in love to build up other believers and not to build up our own arrogance. So just as we should keep verses in their context, our theology needs to be based on the whole of Scripture. So here are a few of the many places where Scripture speaks so positively of the mind and of knowledge. First, let's go to Proverbs 1.22. Fools hate knowledge. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Hosea chapter 4 says that God's people perish for lack of knowledge regarding the law. Second Peter tells us to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. In Philippians 1.9, Paul prayed that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Paul even praises knowledge as a part of spiritual warfare. This is found in 2 Corinthians 10.5. He says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
Proverbs says that the discerning heart acquires knowledge. In Proverbs 129, we are warned of the destruction that follows a hatred of knowledge. So over and over in scripture, we're commanded to seek out knowledge. And over and over, we are warned of the consequences if we don't. In fact, when Jesus commanded us to love the Lord your God with all your mind, He was saying that we must love God with all of our intellectual capacity. So knowledge has to be held in tension with love, and when it isn't, pride and arrogance can gain a foothold. But true knowledge is actually really humbling. The more I learn, the more I know how much I have to learn. The more I realize how small and inadequate I am intellectually. But when we engage our faith intellectually with love, knowledge will not puff us up. In fact, I have to agree with the writer of Proverbs who said, Lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. All right, the next question we're going to tackle is, should Christians read the Bible literally? In my experience reading materials written by progressive Christians and and by atheists, often the charge is that we are literalists. We take the Bible too literally and therefore don't take it very seriously, or that somehow others have a higher view of Scripture because they read it in a more non-literal way. So I hope this answer is helpful. Do you take the Bible literally? In the purest sense of the word, no one does. Literally no one takes the Bible literally. Don't get me wrong, most evangelicals would probably say they do. According to a 2011 Gallup poll, 41% of Protestants said they take the Bible literally. But I suspect it all comes down to what we mean when we use the word literal. If someone asked me, do I read the Bible literally, I would say yes. But to read it literally doesn't mean I take everything in it literally. This is why I'm always a little stunned when skeptics and progressive Christians characterize evangelicals as literalists. I always wonder, what do they think that means? Is that just another way of saying fundamentalist? For example, the Huffington Post published an article by spiritual teacher Steve McSwain. In it, he claimed that fundamentalist Christians do not, in fact, take the Bible literally like they say they do. He cites the fact that Christians no longer stone disobedient children or kill people for the worship of false gods, even though the Old Testament law prescribes those punishments for those types of crimes. His main point is that because Christians don't take these passages literally, we are simply just picking and choosing which ones we obey, which makes the whole doctrine of biblical authority a bit sketchy. But all of these problems can be solved if we understand one simple thing, and that is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically just the art of interpreting the Bible properly. So here are four things to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible. Number one, grammar. Now, this might seem really simple, but Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word literal this way. Adhering to fact or to the ordinary construction or primary meaning of a term or expression, free from exaggeration or embellishment, characterized by a concern mainly with facts. Sometimes the primary meaning of an expression makes use of a figure of speech while still being factual. Let's do a little thought experiment. Close your eyes and think about the last sunset you witnessed. Bring into your memory all the colors, the clouds, the landscape, every last detail. Now, imagine you're describing that beautiful sunset to a friend, but your friend retorts, hey, but the sun doesn't set. 
The sun is fixed and the planets orbit around the sun. Your whole story is just a bunch of unscientific mumbo jumbo. You'd probably be surprised that your friend would so easily ignore the facts of your experience simply because they don't get that you're using a figure of speech. In reality, not many people would respond like that, but sadly, this is how many skeptics approach the Bible. So allow me to introduce you to the golden rule of interpretation. And it's really the starting point for understanding the Bible. And it goes basically like this. When the plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the context indicate clearly otherwise. Well, this is just good grammar, and most people know this intuitively. For example, I've never met anyone who believed that Jesus was an actual door, or a shepherd, or a stone, a loaf of bread, a lion, a root, or a vine, or that his followers are actual salt, or light, or branches, or sheep. These are easily recognized metaphors that only take a bit of common sense to spot. But it's really important to note that all of these figures of speech have a literal meaning or interpretation behind them. And in many cases, the Bible goes on to explain exactly what those meanings are. Number two, the second thing to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible is to understand how the Old Testament relates with the New Testament. So the Old Testament is largely focused on Israel. This was God's chosen people. And it was really important to God to keep his people set apart from other nations because it was from the nation of Israel that the Messiah would eventually come. So God made a special covenant with Israel. He didn't make that covenant with anyone else. There were certain laws and rituals, including various sacrifices offered in the tabernacle and later in the temple. There were ceremonial laws and purity laws, dress codes and dietary laws. Also, the Old Testament Mosaic law was always understood to be temporary. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 look forward to a new covenant. It's not that the Mosaic law was bad. The law is good, but it was given for a specific period of time and then set aside when its purpose was accomplished. It was never meant to be binding on all people of all times. But the moral laws we find in the Old Testament, those were binding on all people, and they're still binding today because those laws are a reflection of God's nature and character. Surrounding nations were judged if they didn't repent for their moral sin. Well, how do we know what the moral law is? I think a good place to start is any command that's repeated in the New Testament. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When the veil in the temple was torn at his death, the need for the entire sacrificial system with its cleanliness laws was done away with. His death paid the penalty for sin, and this ended the prescribed earthly punishments for sins like disobedience and the worship of false gods. So if we go around stoning disobedient children and false god worshipers, we would actually be misunderstanding and disobeying the Bible. We would be denying the work of the resurrected Jesus upon which our faith is grounded. Number three, the third thing to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible is to recognize the genre. So the Bible's not simply a book. It's a collection of books that were written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 different authors. And just like the books that we're all used to reading today, the different books of the Bible have different genres. Biblical genres include poetry and biography, prophecy, and historical narrative. This is just to name a few. 
The Bible also contains allegories and parables and sometimes uses poetic language within a historical narrative. Now, this is simple enough when distinguishing between a command of Jesus and a truth found in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. But what about the more fantastical passages? This brings us to point number four. The fourth thing to keep in mind when interpreting the Bible is to understand the supernatural events, things like flying horses and talking snakes. So one of the most common reasons people abandon a literal interpretation of the Bible is because some of the historical and future events written about are supernatural in nature. Let's be honest, talking snakes and talking donkeys are difficult concepts for us moderns to wrap our heads around, let alone a first century Jewish rabbi coming back to life after lying dead in a sealed tomb for three days. So this is generally referred to as an anti-supernatural bias. This bias is born out of the assumption that God doesn't exist. Think about it. If God doesn't exist, then of course he couldn't make donkeys talk or blind eyes see or raise the dead to life. But if he does exist, anything is possible. C.S. Lewis once noted, But if we admit God, must we admit miracle? Indeed, indeed, you have no security against it. Simply put, if God exists, then the miracles and the supernatural events reported in the Bible are possible. I once heard it said, turning water into wine is no problem if God can make water out of nothing. So does the typical evangelical take everything in the Bible literally? I don't think so, and that is not being hypocritical, it's being consistent. Frank Turek sums it up nicely. He said this, I'm often asked, do you take the Bible literally? My answer is yes, where it's meant to be taken literally. When I read Jesus is the door, I don't think he has hinges. That's a metaphor. It communicates a literal truth, but not in a literal way. In fact, everything in the Bible is literally true, but not all of it is expressed in a literal way. Likewise, when Paul says that he preached the gospel all over the world, he doesn't mean literally everywhere. He means in many prominent places, just how we might describe a lengthy trip by saying we went everywhere. That's a literary or rhetorical device called hyperbole, exaggeration for effect. We don't communicate in a hyper-literal way, and we shouldn't expect a book as diverse as the Bible to either. So reading the Bible literally doesn't mean we take everything in it literally. It means we know that God has a literal message to communicate to us. And he used things like figures of speech, parable, poetry, wisdom literature, historical narrative, prophecy, and epistle to communicate that message to us in the Bible. Finally, I'm going to bring you the results of some research that I found really interesting. A sociologist named George Yancey has studied the differences between conservative and progressive Christians, and he found out something really interesting about the political views between the two groups. Check it out. I want to talk to you today about an article that was published recently on the Gospel Coalition written by a sociologist named George Yancey. Now, Dr. Yancey has been studying the differences between progressive Christians and conservative Christians for several years, and actually the findings of his research will be published in a book coming out this summer, and that book is going to be called One Faith No Longer, The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America. And as far as I understand, he's taking 
to look at the differences between these two groups from a, a theological angle and also a political angle. Now, this article that was published on the Gospel Coalition is very interesting to me because it analyzes the beliefs from a more political perspective. Now, in defining these two different categories, Dr. Yancey describes conservative Christians as those who believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word and that Jesus is the only path to salvation. On the other hand, he identifies progressive Christians as those who do not believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God or that Jesus is the only path to salvation. The article points out that lately there's been a lot of criticism over the political entanglements of conservative Christians. Conservative Christians have been under fire lately for their political activism, but this article points out that progressive Christians are not without their political entanglements as well. In fact, one of the findings of the study is that progressive Christians actually prioritize political values more than conservative Christians do. And also that political conformity is more important for progressive Christians than it is for conservative Christians. Dr. Yancey lays out three reasons why he believes progressive Christians are actually more political than conservative Christians. And the first reason is different frameworks. So progressive Christians and conservative Christians are operating from completely different value systems. He points out that values like inclusion and tolerance and social justice are linked to humanistic values that are usually found among highly educated political progressives, and this would be regardless of whether or not they're Christians. So for progressive Christians, those values are at the foundation of how they understand reality and even approach questions such as meaning. Whereas for conservative Christians, the way they approach reality and those deep questions of meaning are largely going to be informed by the Bible, specifically a historical biblical interpretation. The second reason he gives for why he thinks progressive Christians are more political than conservative Christians is that they have different images of Jesus. Progressive Christians tend to focus on the actions and the teachings of Jesus that reinforce their values of tolerance and inclusion, which they see as examples of love. Whereas for conservative Christians, Jesus is interpreted through that historical biblical framework. And so they have less of a problem seeing this Jesus that might be a little more intolerant at times, even excluding people from salvation. The third reason he gives for why he thinks progressive Christians are more political than conservative Christians is that there's a very different view of the Bible between the two groups. Progressive Christians tend to not see the Bible as the inerrant word of God, but rather as a book of wisdom, and they question traditional interpretations of the scriptures, whereas conservative Christians tend to view the Bible as the inerrant word of God and authoritative for their lives. Another finding of the study is that conservative Christians are more likely to create sort of outgroups based on theology rather than politics, whereas progressive Christians are more likely to create outgroups based on politics rather than theology. Progressive Christians are more likely to accept non-Christians, which is a part of their values of tolerance and inclusion, except the article notes this, and this is a very interesting quote. It says, such tolerance, however, does not extend to conservative Christians whom they see as not practicing the inclusion they so highly value. Progressive Christians are less likely than conservative Christians to have different types of believers and friends. Progressive Christians are more likely to reject conservative Christians than conservative Christians are to reject progressive Christians. Progressive Christians envision conservative Christians as barriers to the type of inclusion and tolerance they want in 
in society. Toward the end of the article, Dr. Yancey points out that many people have rightly criticized the entanglement of conservative Christians with politics. But then he goes on to note that progressive Christians stress political values more than conservative Christians, yet there is less criticism of their activism. He closes out the article by saying that at the very least we should dispense with the stereotype that it's only conservative Christians who impose their faith on politics. Well, thanks so much for listening today. If you want to put the video to the audio you just heard, go on over to YouTube and check out my YouTube channel. It's really been growing over the last year. God's just really been blessing it. I'm super grateful. You can go to youtube.com slash Alisa Childers. All of our long-form podcasts are in video form on YouTube. And there's also short videos like the ones you just heard that I release from time to time. We also release clips from the longer-form podcasts. So if If there was a particular subject you were interested in, but you didn't get a chance to get through the whole hour, chances are you'll find one of your questions answered on one of those shorter clips. Uh, I also just want to say something. A lot of people email me and ask, you know, where can I send my kid to college? Where, what's a safe Bible college? What's a safe seminary to go to? It seems like so many seminaries are either going progressive or they're going woke or they're going both. And it's really difficult to find a safe place. And a lot of Christian parents and Christian kids, depending on the maturity level, opt to send their kids into some of those more hostile environments because it will test them and bring them through the fire, so to speak. And so, you know, each parent just has to make that decision. But I just want to say that there's there's one seminary and Bible college that I wholeheartedly endorse as a place that your college age student, or if you're college age or high school and you're listening to this, this is a not just a safe place. This is a place where you are going to get top-notch Christian education. You're going to get great theology, apologetics, and philosophy integrated in every single class. And that's Southern Evangelical Seminary. I've mentioned Southern Evangelical Seminary several times on this podcast before because it's really a big part of my story. Uh, When I was in deconstruction and I was sort of reconstructing my faith, or I should say God was reconstructing my faith, uh, SES, Southern Evangelical Seminary, was one of the early resources that I found. And I learned so much. And you guys, I was just basically a stay-at-home mom that was auditing classes. I wasn't even really paying very much, just a real minimal fee to audit the class. So they weren't really making any money off me, but they cared about me. And my professors were engaged. They answered my questions. And SES is a huge part of my reconstruction of faith. And so I just am really passionate about promoting SES. And so they just emailed me this week and they said, you know, if you want to give people a discount, if you want to give your viewers and your listeners a discount, uh, for SES education classes, uh, they are offering a 10% discount on your first four-credit course. So if you go to ses.edu and you want to take a course, when you sign up, enter the code alisa 10 first on your application. Okay, so that's ALISA, the number 10, 
and then the word first, Elisa 10 first. And they're going to give you 10% off of your first for credit course. Why not give it a try? Uh, they're wonderful. We've had a lot of SES alumni and professors on this podcast, and they do such a great job defending the historic Christian faith. They are one of the only seminaries I know of that have uh, drafted a position paper on social justice, so that it's very clear what they believe about that. And yeah, just check it out, ses.edu, your first four credit course, you get 10% off with the code ELISA10 first. And be sure and tune in next week because this is kind of the topic we're going to talk about is how to survive college with your faith intact. We're going to interview Michael Kruger, who we've had on the podcast before to talk about his book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. He's coming back next week. He's going to talk to us about his new book, Surviving Religion 101, that he wrote to his daughter who went to the same college he went to where he had a professor named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman was instrumental in challenging him actually to become a Bible scholar so that he could challenge and refute the ideas of Bart Ehrman. And we've mentioned Bart Ehrman on the podcast before as well. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. So thank you so much for listening today, and we'll see you next week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.